Uh, hello and welcome to a slightly more intimate evening than usual in the Feathers pub in, we in Westminster. I, I, I don't know about this script, intimate. I mean, are we going to have Barry White on in the background at some point? I'm Philip Lee, Liberal Democrat, prospective parliamentary candidate for Wokingham in Berkshire. And I'm flying solo this week as my colleague Sam Gima is off on the campaign, campaign trail in Kensington this evening where he's standing. At this, is, at this early stage, it's looking pretty encouraging for both of us. I'm up against the notorious hard Brexiteer, and, and, and with reference to our guest this evening, uh, a hard Brexiteer, and also somebody who seems to deny scientific evidence quite a lot around climate change. His name is John Redwood in Wokingham, and a recent Servation poll puts our team in Wokingham up 22 points at 38%, with Mr Redwood and the Tories down 15 points at 42%. Actually, if you look closer at the figures, there's about 20% don't knows in this in this poll. So basically, it's all to play for in Wokingham. And in Kensington, Sam only needs one in three people to vote tactically in order to overturn a wafer-thin Labour majority and also beat the Conservative candidate. So, Sam, if you're listening, and we know you are, because like all sensible people, you've subscribed to the On The House podcast on your favourite podcast app. Good luck, Sam, and we'll see you next week. It's not all MPs on this podcast. This week's special guest has been one of the most determined campaigners uh, against Brexit. He's the founder of Scientists for the EU and NHS for a People's Vote. You may have seen him speak at People's Vote marches and rallies. He is, in fact, a bit of a rock star of Remain. It's Mike Goldsworthy. Hello, Mike. Welcome to On The House. How good are you? evening. Yeah, in good spirits. Yeah. Are you enjoying our knobby nuts? I am. I've, I've devoured a couple of packs already, one of the plain salted ones and one of the dry roasted. So I'm off to a good start. Good news. Now, Brexit has rather taken over your life since 2016. If you'd been told then that we'd still be in the European Union at the end of 2019, how do you think you'd have reacted? I would have been happy, but I would have been very misled. <laughs> by, such a, by such a statement. Um, the situation at the moment we're in is, is pretty precarious. However, having said that, um, I would have anticipated at that stage that we'd be in a precarious situation at this stage. A lot of people told me early on in campaigning, it's lovely what you're doing, Mike, but aren't you going a bit overboard? Would never vote to leave the EU. And I kept telling them, have you been on social media? Have you seen how yeah, um, yeah, yeah. the Leave side are campaigning? Some of them get up in the morning and are tweeting about Brexit. They're doing it at lunch. They're doing it late at night. They're going to bed, waking up again, and they're at it again and again and again. They're driven for it, whereas on our side, people weren't committed. And then just before the vote as well, um, I remember being interviewed by a Canadian um, television and saying, whichever way it goes, we're going to have Brexit and the issues around Brexit on our hands for many years to come because it's becoming really entrenched as an issue. So I wouldn't have been surprised at all at that time to hear that we'd be in a very precarious situation around the very same issue at the end of 2019. I mean, unlike you, I didn't worry because of what I was seeing on social media. I worried about what I was hearing from my constituents and indeed my patients in Slough yeah. about how they were seeing the referendum in 2016. I didn't campaign for Remain. 
I stayed out of it. I thought that my role as a member of parliament in a representative democracy, based democracy, was to facilitate debate of the issue, because yep. ultimately my vote in that referendum was going to count the same as everybody else's vote. I declared for Remain sort of early June, as I remember, thinking that I was backing the losing team. Interesting. And, and yeah. I... Um, and I remember having long conversations with my family and sort of close friends about it. But I concluded that we were better off saying in what is a flawed organisation, but all human organisations are flawed because guess what? You're flawed and I'm flawed. So organisations of us are going to be flawed. But I thought it was better we stayed within and made it better than leaving. And that's what I did, but I never actually campaigned. And, and I... I reflect upon that because I do wonder whether I should have been campaigning and trying to lead my constituency. I, I don't know. I'll never know. But when it came to it on the day, the only reason I thought Remain had a chance, and it's for sad reason, was of Joe Cox's murder. And I thought, OK, maybe that will push some women into the Remain column, sense of security, that sort of thing. That's what yeah. I, I had this sort of belief. But I think I'd underestimated how far ahead leave were because if you look at the pollings retrospectively it was 40 55 45 and then post her murder it was 52 48 it actually it became closer so that was the only time i thought remain might get over the finish line was in the days just before the referendum but had a deep concern that by having the referendum it was introducing division in british society that was going to take years to deal with irrespective of the result yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that because uh, a lot of people have presumed um, that myself being a Remainer, that I would have been against the referendum happening in the first place. I wasn't. As far as I was concerned, this was an issue that was being pushed by, by one side with a whole load of misinformation over 20-odd years. I had started commentating on this issue in 2013 when I came back to the UK from Slovenia and saw some Tories pushing the notion that the EU itself was anti-scientific. And I thought, hold on a second, this is wrong. And then as I saw what was being pushed through all the tabloid presses, that I walked past every day on the street about immigration um, I knew there was real toxic build-up and I saw the lack of pushback coming from our politicians of all stripes and I thought this thing needs to be taken head-on the point where I thought it really all went wrong was when David Cameron came to power on the promise of having a referendum he had said a referendum before the end of 2017 right and I remember sitting in the office of um, um, Al Johnson um, when he told me what the date was going to be, when, it, when he said it was going to be in June. And I said, what, are you nuts? Just four months away, all of this misinformation over 20-odd years and four months to clear it up, like, that is nuts. There are so many issues to deal with. There are so many ways that you need to structure this properly, to calm it down, to go through proper layers of education. We've got time to do this. And he said, no, no, Cameron thinks that um, uh, the Leave campaigns in disarray and fighting each other, so we should go quickly. And he also doesn't want to have the um, immigration influx on, on all the beaches like we had in 2015 and wants to get a vote before then and he wants to get this tidied up and out of the way quickly so he can get on with the rest of the agenda and I thought that 
was irresponsible, just as I thought it was deeply irresponsible that during the coalition government we had invested millions in investigating the UK's relationship with the EU in that series of 32 balance of competences documents that then should have been the basis for a Remain campaign, but they were hidden at the time by David Cameron in a sort of uh, palming off for the sake of, of the Brexiteers in his party. So I thought we should have had that debate, we should have had it properly, we should have had it in long form, we should have had it with good structures, but it was rushed and it was casual and it was with the wrong franchise for the voters and it was just all buggered up on the thought that it could be pushed over the line easily without any recognition of the deep underlying toxin that had been built up over the last 20 years. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. and I which is why I didn't want to have the referendum in the first place. In fact, I remember actually doing a fundraising event for John Redwood uh, in, in Wokingham, and it took place in February 2016. And I did my little speech, and then I took questions from the floor. And one of the questions from the floor was, do you think having a referendum on such a complex issue is a good idea? Right. And I said no, and I thought that having the referendum was a mistake, not because I didn't think that, it that a proper debate with the public didn't need to take place, I just thought that a snap referendum on a complex issue like this, you were not going to get an informed result. And I said this at this fundraising event, and Mr Redwood got up, shouted at me and left the room. And I'll never forget it, because it was, I think it's the rudest that any uh, member of parliament has ever been to me, actually, in a, in a public area. But I remember reflecting upon it, thinking, yeah, but I think I'm right here. This is not going to end well. Even if it went remain, yeah. the, we were not going to have a proper debate about the issues and the depth of the relationship, the complexity of it, and the benefits yeah. of the relationship. Yeah. And yes, obviously, some of the trades that you have to make on sovereignty and obviously there are also things about the European Union where they get it wrong all of that is true and I um, and I yes and so I was always like you anxious that we were trying to take on 20 years of misinformation out there in the out there in the in the minds of the public and I think Cameron's decision to have one to have it when he did and on the terms that he did were three of the most catastrophically bad decisions that the Prime Minister has made in living memory. Yeah, it was it was pretty cash cash. Yeah. Yeah. But, but trying to be positive. <laughs> how do you see it now between Leave and Remain? I mean are you more I mean are you more optimistic about it? I mean do you think in the intervening period that the public have become more informed about the implications of Brexit? I think so, Cer certainly some. And I know um, there's, there's a lot of doom and gloom about the fact that, that we may be on the precipice yet again of getting pulled out. Um, but the polls have moved more towards Remain. We have built a huge community for Remain. Um, the largest pro-European community or pro-EU community in all of Europe. Um, and, uh, I mean, certainly 
with European movement and Open Britain and the People's Vote campaign and Britain for Europe and the work that we've done. We've got about 200 pro-EU groups across the country associated with well over half a million followers on Facebook of those different groups, just those local groups. Um, and I think there's a lot of fighting for values that we once took for granted. And some of the more ridiculous claims that were made during 2015 and 2016, um, I'm not seeing to the same degree that I see now. The argument is largely about we should get on with it and we kind of have to do it because we made this decision and the EU broadly is bad. But, but I, I do think that um, there is a movement um, happening in the minds of the public. I do think within the public across the EU, they are also looking at us, at us you know, as the test case and thinking, holy crap, um, you know, for our own fault that we have told ourselves so many lies and got ourselves so angry and used such rhetoric about our friends and neighbours that I think, to a degree, we've, we've served as a bit of an inoculation. We have done something of a favour to the rest of the EU by boldly experimenting with, with hostile sentiments and taking a plunge and throwing ourselves in a briar patch and getting all scratched up and it's brought them together as they negotiate with us, not with ill will actually, I think they've been extraordinarily professional about it and one of the, the most uh, darkly entertaining things for me as a scientist is that I always think about you know, theory and test the theory was that we were stuck in the EU and if we left it our economy would shoot up uh, partly because we are better negotiators in the EU so we could do better trade deals. Now, what's the way to test that? It's to take us out of partnership with the EU where we're negotiating trade deals together and set our very best negotiators against their very best negotiators and see which are more effective. And I think we've done that over the past three years and I think the results are in and they're fairly clear. <laughs> exactly. It's not gone too well, has it? No, it's not. Yeah. But I, before we came side of the podcast, we were talking about the challenge of trying to get over the impact upon science yeah. and on the provisions of medications, everything else. These are quite complex arguments to make in this age of 140 character tweets in which people, most people really don't have the time or the inclination to fully engage yeah. with these issues, which is not a criticism, it's just an observation. How do you see this? I mean, you and I know that there are the, the, the sharing of information across borders fosters better science and discovery. For sure. Yeah, we know this. And we know that this can lead to invention, discovery, innovation, whatever, that better benefits people's lives. Yeah. And we also, you and I, know that leaving the European Union in the context of all of that is a bloody silly thing to be doing. Yeah. But trying to get that over on the doorsteps via social media, however you're trying, is actually quite difficult. I mean, how do you see it? Well, we won over the science community very, very quickly. Um, and like in most higher education, nine out of 10 uh, back remain. Because scientists themselves understand the value of collaborative structures, uh, um, of all that sharing, the fact that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts says there's the extra benefit derived 
from teaming up at that level. And, and this is why the EU um, have gotten ahead of America on, on a few metrics recently by being able to pull off scale projects, um, as well as having the free flow of all the talent in it. So we won over the science community very, very quickly. And this was one area where I... Where I um, beat Dominic Cummings because if you look at the Vote Leave Twitter account it still says on it uh, Vote Leave and invest in the NHS and science. He wanted to run on science very early and um, he even produced videos championing British science but when he saw our campaign take off then he, he, he and others tried to create scientists for Britain and Michael Gove's ex-bad, Jamie Martin, was recruited to help them out. But they pretty much withered on the vine compared to us, and they, they gave up on the science arguments and just stuck with the NHS arguments. So the science community was one, but then how do you make the science argument to the wider public? There is a degree whereby you can call upon pride in our nation and, you know, our historic championing of science and say and look at what the scientists are saying and, and that will get you so far but for a lot of people that have become emotionally invested in leave if they see the scientists on the other side they'll quite happily throw them under the bus and say you've got vested interest you're on the gravy train I don't want to hear from you so the trick is then for those people to explain to them or to convince them of the fact that science and scientists and universities have their back. Uh, I mean, people who are hard up, people who are resentful of the world around them, oftentimes, rightly so, they care about who has their back. Nurses have their back. Um, police may or may not have their back. Doctors have their back. Um, uh, who, who in the local community has their back? Does Nigel Farage have their back? Some of them think that he does, right? So it is about who has their back. And so this is why one of the things coming out of the referendum that I was trying to emphasise with a lot of universities was, you saw that, right? You were nervous about getting in that fight, right? Let's not get like America, where you've got big political segments that are saying... Scientists only vote for Dems, therefore they are against us, they are our enemies, we won't listen to anything they say. We have to actually celebrate conservatives championing science and we actually have to have our universities working with local communities, farmers, local startups, all parts of it, working with them so that they think that local university and those scientists work with us and care about us and have our back. That's what we've got to do. I mean, I have long had a concern about the way in which science is reported by the media. Yeah. As a practising doctor, the classic example is MMR vaccine, yeah. um, which, you know, was a safe, is a safe vaccine, always was, and the there was this publication, an article was published surprisingly in the Lancet by the doctor who's now been removed from the medical register here and is, I think last time I heard, working in Texas for some billionaire or something. And this was falsified evidence. It wasn't true that it was linked with autism. Now, at the time, as a practising doctor, the media believes it has to be balanced, in inverted commas, i.e. a academic, an immunologist 
a specialist from Imperial College gets 15 seconds on the BBC News and some nutcase who thinks that MMR um, causes autism, who hasn't got any scientific qualification whatsoever, also gets 15 seconds. Now, that's not being impartial. That's giving too much airplay to th things that don't have an evidence base. Now, if you bring that over into the political space, you see the same thing has happened with Brexit. The majority, the great majority of economists think Brexit's a bad idea. The great majority of trade negotiators with any experience whatsoever think it's a bad idea. But I have not actually seen any broadcaster, certainly not the BBC, give airplay as a proportion in relative to the proportion of economists who think it's a good idea versus a bad idea. And, and they should, because if you keep giving credence to one economist who thinks it might be a good idea to, do, to follow Brexit and the other 99 who don't, or whatever the number is, that distorts it in the eyes of the public, a public that doesn't have economic qualifications doesn't have scientific qualifications you've got i mean i i think the broadcasters in this period have not i, I think particularly the bbc have fallen short of standards that you would expect of a public sector broadcaster totally and there's more to it than just that because it's not just giving credence it's giving training so what happened during 2016 is i mentioned before scientists for britain they got on the mainstream media a good seven to ten times more frequently than we did. Even though our organization, in terms of membership, followership, support, was ten times larger. I mean, if you think about university vice-chancellors, there were over a hundred that signed a letter for Remain, and not a single one in the whole damn country that backed leave. But nevertheless, whenever anyone from the science community made a comment backing Remain, they would go to Scientists for Britain repeatedly 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 so we were a diffuse bunch from which could make comments for a main but it would always train up the same individuals on the leave side and that's the same thing as climate change where you get specialists specialists in in i i would argue disinformation for climate denial same thing with mmr where you train up some people they might not have the qualifications but they get training in doing the media at a disproportionate level to, to those who were who scientists against it. And this is another thing where when you consider BBC bias on Brexit, a lot of those that are accusing it of pro-Remain bias are saying, looking at the public, why are you not having MPs on in a 50-50 representation? Well, actually, when you've got two-thirds for remain and one third for leave if you're trying to make it 50 50 you're actually giving specialist training to that smaller number of mps that are ardently for leave and then they become much more prominent than any remain campaigner so there's a distortion factor to it Mike, the first week of the election has seen both the Conservatives and Labour offering huge public spending commitments. Sajid Javid has ripped up his own rules and is promising 20 billion of borrowing and tax cuts. I mean, what's quite interesting about this is the Liberal Democrats, I speak up for them, 
we came out this week with our remain bonus for 50 billion if you remain in the if we the country remains in the European Union. Now that figure actually is a, an underestimate of the likely benefit of staying in by 2025. But internally in the party, we were of the belief that we wouldn't want to overcommit. We didn't want to spend money that we didn't have, and we wanted to be responsible with the public finances. But actually, I look at the Labour and Conservatives who are talking about significant borrowing to invest in public services. It's uh, an interesting uh, pitch that they're both making. What do you think? I think with the Liberal Democrats, you have an opportunity with your modest and moderate pitch on finances to actually target those conservatives that are fiscal conservatives specifically on this issue and peel them away because they know full well that um, Brexit is a bonfire of money available and then seeing a big expenses splurge on top of that will make them very very nervous indeed and that's where the Liberal Democrats can actually talk about responsible spending and the fact that um, you will actually have more money in the bank if you maintain the entire contractual structure that you have at the moment with all of your neighbouring countries. That is something they will understand. I think the reason why the Conservatives are going for this big spend is because polling shows that the public want more investment um, in, in infrastructure around the country. They're acutely aware that there's been um, a lack of that and they feel the bite. Um, but I think they will be nervous by uh, Brexit followed by an expenditure splurge. Um, I think with... Um, do you want to talk about the Labour promises to spend? Yeah. I think with Labour, that, that figure of, you know, 400 billion, um, obviously it's very alarming. Um, I mean, I am Labour myself. I believe in big expenditure in, in infrastructures and public services and public ownership to boot. And I think taking away that ownership from the public, it, it leaves them very disaffected. We should all be involved in that. However, if you're going to have an, an expenditure increase, there are some areas where it's easy to do, such as in welfare, because you know what you're dealing with and you know you're putting more money in the pockets of people. But then there are other areas like big projects. And if you want to throw in a big project and say we're going to spend tens of billions on this or a few billion on this, to leap straight into that and to try and do multiple those in parallel, I think is very, very dangerous. We have seen big projects fall before. You need to approach them cautiously. Think about the, the database with, with the NHS and how that blew up. Um, think about the expense of, of Brexit itself and all of the ridiculous side projects that it's, it's spun out, such as the, the false ferry company. Whenever you're trying to spend big budget in new areas, you're likely to come a cropper, and I worry that a Labour Party that hasn't been in power for a very long time trying to come in and spend big money is going to get itself caught very short very quickly. I mean, I... Look, I, it's clear that there is new infrastructure is required in the country. What always worries me, it goes back to our science backgrounds, is the evidence base for what we do. I mean, my particular beef with Hinkley Point when I was on the Energy and Climate Change Select Committee 
you know, I could not understand why we were building that nuclear reactor in that way. They hadn't delivered one on time anywhere on the face of the earth. Yeah. Hugely expensive financing model involving the Chinese government, which has, as far as I'm concerned, national security implications. Um, it wasn't our own technology. It's French technology. If you were going to approach it and think, OK, we need to build a nuclear industry and, and have a proper nuclear cycle and, 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 and academia and, and a proper waste disposal or whatever, if you were going to do all of that, then maybe it has a case. But just willy-nilly spending 20, 30 billion pounds on one energy project always struck me as, as profligate. I didn't understand where that policy had come from. And the same arguments could be made for HS2 and everything else. It's, it's not necessarily, I don't want to travel on fast trains. Everyone does. Everyone enjoys it on the continent. Um, it's not that I am against getting electricity from lots of different sources. It's just where, how does government actually invest in infrastructure that will stand the test of time and that actually is, um, a, on a cost-benefit front, worthwhile doing? Totally. And big businesses love to rip off governments. Um, I mean, me, myself, I'm, I'm very tight with expenditure. You know, when you've been campaigning on a shoestring for years and when you've had your own small business before that, you know how to be tight on, it, on expenditure. And I've seen large entities throwing large amounts of money at things that look good um, or things that are superficial marketing, um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's poor expenditure. So I'm very nervous about going into um, big projects where you don't have experience and throwing big money at it. However, expenditure um, basically a, a across our, our schools and our welfare and our NHS at the ground level where you're actually putting money in the pockets of small people um, and small entities, that's something which I always think is a much, much safer bet. Now, moving to the actual campaign itself, I mean, what a beginning, particularly for the Conservative Party. I mean, a cabinet minister resigning. Yep. Um, those absolutely disgraceful comments from Jacob Rees-Mogg yep. uh, over Grenfell Tower um, victims. Um, I mean, and then along comes Andrew Bridgen, and a true to form makes it even worse. Um, the list goes on. I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to get civil servants doing things that then were deemed to be... I wonder what's happened to Marc Francois. They, yeah. they, 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 they must uh, have uh, locked him in a lead box and uh, say, uh, you uh, know, uh, you cannot come out and follow this up. You cannot. Yeah, and, 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 let's, and let's be balanced with this. Tom Watson standing down, Ian Austin today saying, vote Tory. I mean, both major parties have had a pretty difficult start to their to their campaigns. In fact, I, you know, I'm going to be... I'm not being biased here. So, so, what so have, far, so the Liberal Democrats are the only wrong. ones who haven't absolutely cocked up. I mean, the other two, I think, in any other age... It, I mean, I think it's set a tone, actually, particularly on the Tory side, a tone of really not... It's not been very pleasant, has it? It's all been a bit bit seedy, a bit a bit not, not good at all. Yeah, I mean, uh, Lib Dems have made some some minor mistakes, such as sniping at the Labour Party too much and, and turning off a few people on the tactical vote. Um, and also, um, the Unite to Remain initiative has, has got, the, um, got some people 
within Labour a, a bit irritating, could have been smoothed out a little bit better with, with some open offers of, you know, we would modify this if you are prepared to stand, you know, just throwing something out. But I think that that's quite small compared to the absolute, um, uh, I don't know what language I can use. Um, clusterfuck that was the Tories' first day of campaigning where they showed themselves to be the full horror show that they were, or as Ian Dunt said, had descended fully into the sewer. Um, and it was, it was so layered in terms of its ugliness uh, with those comments about Grenfell, with, uh, with Boris Johnson's speech just layered with lie upon lie at a rate that most people could not keep up with. Um, and also, over time, the departure of so many, like, like your good self, Tory moderates um, who just cannot stomach the, the churning toxicity that the Conservative Party is, is rapidly becoming. Um, I mean, can I just interject? This week I felt rather melancholy on Tuesday. I was walking around Parliament. It was an odd mood. And I never thought I'd come to a point where I was no longer part of the Conservative Party and I was going to be going into an election with more uncertainty than I've gone into previous general elections about whether I was coming back. But when you see days like that, when Grenfell Tower, you know, collapsing rape trials, blah, 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 and all the other things, my God, it makes it a lot easier. I mean, because it's... It was difficult for a number of colleagues this week. It was a very... Um, difficult time and I was in the uh, smoking room on I think it was Monday night looking around the room and there was David Gork, Anne Milton, um, Antoinette Sambach, uh, Margot James I mean the list they were all in I, I was just looking around the room and they're all Ken Clark they've all they've, they've gone that's it you know Nick Hurd, Richard Benyon it's 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 a it was remarkable actually and i don't think any of that list would have expected in 2019 to be leaving parliament in those circumstances it's not been an easy week for some people i think it's quite an all-round horror show in terms of our politics um and i don't see an easy route for it to get better actually um i mean you you point to problems in labor uh, i mean i think Tom had been overtly poking at the hornet's nest for a while. He was getting frustrated. He was, he was making noises quite a while ago that he wasn't liking being where he was and, and, and he wanted to flag that up. Um, so he kind of started striking out on his own. Um, I mean, I felt Tom was being provocative at times, um, but at the same time, what was really bothered me about Labour is that they know full well that Jeremy Corbyn isn't popular with the wider public, he's not reaching out, he doesn't reach out on media, for all of this talk of, you know, for the many, not the few, um, he's not been very embracing of the many, um, and, and rather it's been much more focused on winning a battle within Labour. And, and that's what the Praetorian Guard around them, you know, Carrie and Seamus, have all sort of been focused on. And as I said before, um, uh, you know, before this, this 
this um, show started, that it was going to be clear in 2017 that he couldn't sit on the fence forever. The Tories were going to make a horror show of Brexit. Labour was going to have to oppose it because it undermines every principle that Labour traditionally stand for. So he should be coming off the fence to be able to say enough is enough, this isn't right for our country, we should have the right to burn Brexit, to send it up in smoke. But because he hadn't done the work in those constituencies that were Labour, that were tending towards Brexit, they put their head in the sand about that because they hadn't cushioned that side of the fence and got them ready. They now find themselves in a situation where is he on the fence or is he off? They've, they've just, they've just think, sort of buggered it up. I mean, do you give any credence to the, the theory which has banged around Westminster for a number of years, a number of months, that actually the Stalinists want chaos because from chaos comes revolution. Uh, what, do you so therefore a no-deal Brexit is a good outcome if you want the revolution because no-deal Brexit stirs up the masses and then the masses all go, uh, yeah, go that, to the That left. is 100% um, full bullshit. Um, Clearly, don't, don't sit on the fence. Got, don't sit on the fence. Well, the thing is, clearly, if you have a situation whereby you've got a no-deal Brexit, uh, medicines are in short supply, um, the army has to keep control, and that kind of situation, do you think people are going to vote Labour? No, this is perfect, fertile ground for the populist right, which is exactly why they were playing for it. It is Bannon-esque. It is what Dominic Cummings wanted. This is why they were trying to run down the clock. Seamus Milne, if you thought that it was going to go any other way, is a complete and utter dunce that does not understand the wider public outside of the Labour Party. It is a very obvious play. Humans have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. We've gone through many, many situations where you have a tribal leader that has led their tribe into dark circumstances. And then do people say, well, let's go with that, that whining person on the side who said, oh, it's going to be trouble? No, because they look weak. They always, in those cir circumstances, go for the strong leader. Even if it's been the leader that's led you there, anyone that beats their chest says, it's all about me, we can take on our enemies, it's others that have come into our valley and started eating our rabbits and berries. That's what people rally around, and that's when they get violent towards others, and that's when they want to see strong solutions. They want the strong leader in those circumstances. If you don't understand that, you, you, you shouldn't be guiding party politics or any kind of politics, because you're feckin' dunce. Mike, you founded NHS for a people's vote, the NHS campaign for a, a final say. The NHS is the core issue for many British voters. We're now hearing more and more horror stories from people with experience in the American health industry. Do people understand the reality of what an American-style healthcare system would mean? I don't think fully. I think it's slowly coming into consciousness because of the campaigning of so many people within the NHS and the healthcare system and academia that are fully alert to it and have been pushing on it um, on social media for quite a long time that, you know, the threats of what privatisation leads to 
and this also flared up with the issues around TTIP, where I'm glad to say the European public made full use of the European Parliament to shut down what the European Council kind of wanted. Um, so I think it's starting to hone into view. I still think that there are some notions around that, that maybe um, Americans can offer, you know, more value for money on this or that without realising what it leads to. And I'm uh, very frustrated that mainstream media is always slow to cotton on to some of these kind of questions and concerns because mainstream media unfortunately is largely led by the BBC which unfortunately is largely led by the conversations within the Conservative Party so I don't think we're fully there yet at having the full conversation um, about um, our, our NHS model and its potential versus the other countries versus what America um, is like and versus what they would push upon us. I think I think we're getting there, um, but not fully yet. Yeah, I mean, my concern, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about how do you get over complex issues in a way um, that persuades people that it might not be in their best interests to have a free trade agreement with, with the US when yeah. it comes to healthcare. I mean, I, I successfully got an amendment put on the trade bill in July 2018 around the European Medicines Agency, yeah. which essentially meant the government couldn't leave the European Union. It had, they missed it, and we got it over the line by four votes. Now, unfortunately, the trade bill bit the dust when the election was called. The reason I was doing that was I, it was pretty obvious to me that leaving um, the European Union, um, unless we had a proper sort of aligned regulatory system with the Europe that we were going to have problems with our drug supplies but also with bringing new drugs to market yeah because essentially for listeners that a new drug is passed by the FDA the Federal Drug Agency in, uh, in America first it then goes with the EMA second it then goes I think with Japan third China fourth and the rest of the world fifth and the reason it's done in that order is the markets, i.e. the amount of money you're going to get on return for, for, for your investment in developing the drug in the first place. Now, as it currently yep. stands... It's the size of the market for yep. drug expenditure yep. rather than the market as a whole. And even though the EU is larger than the US population-wise, nevertheless, the There's US more money consumes to be made. a hell of a lot of yep. drugs per person. So, yep. so, so for the average Brit in the street listening to this podcast, at the moment we get the drug second as a member of the European Union. If we leave the EMA, which is what we're doing, we will then get the drugs fifth. There'll be months delay um, in getting... Now, if you're, if you're then logging on with your smartphone and you're seeing then some new drugs come out that's going to treat XYZ cancer or XYZ neurodegenerative disease, and you're seeing it and you think, oh, some guy in Texas is getting that, I need that so that I can survive long enough to see my grandchild born or whatever, you're going to start asking the questions. Well, my answer to that question is, you're less likely to be getting that drug if we Brexit. Now, if you put it as starkly as that, I think you can move the dial on people's support. The problem is, though, Mike, is people don't believe it. Yeah. 
And it's sort of, I always draw the analogy with the, the chap who comes to see me for 20 years, and I keep saying to him, don't give, um, you must give up smoking, Mr. Jones. And he says, no, no, no. I said, look, if you don't give up smoking, something's going to happen. He goes away, and then he comes back to me 20 years later, and he says, oh, I want to give up smoking. And you say, well, why now? He said, well, I had a heart attack last week. Yeah. And I think that's what you're dealing with with this discussion on Brexit, is people don't believe people like me that actually leaving the European Union in this way is going to affect their health care, i.e. their health. And I don't know how you can be more stark than the way I've just been. Yeah, no, it's, it's a problem. You can say bluntly that the Swiss and the Canadians get their cutting-edge innovative drugs usually about six months after the UK by virtue of the fact that we're in the single market of medicines. And people will take that. They won't dispute it. But something stops that connecting with a very visceral response about their own health and what that actually means. And I don't know how to make that connection with people once they're bunkered into a certain loyalty. Um, I don't. It's, it's, it's tricky. And, and, and the th there was a really good article by a CNN journalist online this week talking about the realities of a free trade agreement. They're not going to do a free... This is the Americans. They're not going to do a free trade agreement with us after we leave the European Union unless it involves medicines and food. If you look at the free trade agreement the Americans cut with the South Koreans, it involved access to competitive drug pricing. Yeah. And the prices of drugs have done that. Now, the estimate I've seen, I've been chatting to Sarah Wallison about this, we're looking at a bill of more than 10 billion quid, potentially. It's a massive increase in drugs costs yep. if we cut, cut this free trade agreement. Now, why wasn't that on the side of a bus in 2016? And, and it's a real killer because we're in a much more vulnerable situation, um, especially if, if we crash out at the end of 2020 and we have no trade deals whatsoever. We're desperate for any large trade deal. And... America will absolutely try and shove this one down our throat because it's pharma companies and they control the trade policy of the US very, very strongly, as do their agriculture big players. And that's another thing that they're going to try and force different standards on us. And if we don't accept those standards, then we ain't getting any trade deal in any way, shape or form, which is the absolute fig leaf for what Brexit was meant to be about. So we put ourselves in an extremely vulnerable situation. Now, I, I don't understand where the whole Brexit fervour has come from. Now, I'm told that you met Dominic Cummings after the referendum yep. in 2016. I've never met him. I suspect he's clever. I suspect he's, his blogs are quite interesting. I've, I've, I've read some of them. It takes ages to read them. And within it, there is there are the occasional golden nugget. But there's a lot of other stuff that isn't so golden. Yeah. What did you think of him? Um, I mean, I like most people's company. Um, I didn't mind him at all, and I was entertained by 
the fact that that he was uh, having a pop at a lot of other Brexiteers like David Davis, who he told me was absolutely useless during the referendum and spent all of his time having long boozy lunches with Aaron Banks and Nigel Farage. Um, and also, he does care about science. Um, deeply. I'm, I'm not convinced that he fully cares about the science community or he would have listened to them better. However, he is a man who likes shaking things up, tearing things down, innovation. He doesn't like the Conservative Party, he made that clear to me. Um, but but he, he does he does sort of believe in British and he kind of believes in anarchy. Um, I can respect that, but I also factor in people's lives and communities and people know who know about their own industries oh, I mean yeah I mean I I what makes me angry is this sense that the people who are gonna suffer more from this if it happens are the people who can least able to you know to, to take the hit you know I've got friends and family I'm from an ostensibly working-class background I'm the black sheep in my family I mean I've got more O-levels than the rest of my family put together immediately extended. And there are members of my family who voted Brexit. And they voted the decent people, they listened to what they were being told, and they made their decision. And although I tried hard to say, look, it's not as straightforward as that, that isn't true, they voted for it. And that needs to be respected and understood but what makes me really angry is that these people were manipulated. I'm, I genuinely believe it. And they were there. They were told that this was going to be the solution to all of their concerns and their worries. The NHS was wheeled out. Oh, we're going to spend more money on it. They wheeled it out. The the the, the, the wheeled out the, the the nonsense about Turkey's accession yeah. to stir up Islamophobia. What makes me angry is that is that people who write emails to me saying I'm not respecting their vote and everything else I have respected their vote I you know I've not actually voted against Brexit at any stage in the last few years what I have voted against and what I have sought to try to secure is an opportunity for the for the public to have an informed vote for, for sure. people like you to be able to propagate information about the benefits of EU membership in terms of science yeah. and, and, and healthcare and everything else. And I and I, I just so desperately want that to happen. Because even then, if the, if, if the country votes Brexit, I think as a country we will be in a, a better place. Because there will be, okay, everyone understood the implications and they've still voted for it. That must be what they want. I can understand that. Where I think we are at the moment is uh, there's a deep sense of unease I detect in the constituency I'm running in. And I, I think if we don't try to address that, then this is going to run. It'd be like a running sore on British body politic for the, at least a decade or two. I think almost whichever way we go, we run that risk. I totally agree with you um, about the lies during the referendum. Um, in that sense, I mean, if you've got someone like Dominic Cummings, um, who is, you know, masterful manipulator, I don't, I don't mind this in the context of, you know, mixed martial arts when you've got two people that want to do that, or two cutthroat businesses, fine, that's your game, that's what you've chosen for yourself. But if you take up the reins of, of, of politics 
advocacy in a, in a campaign that impacts people or a political party where it impacts people and it does hurt the vulnerable um, when you're peddling things such as the NHS lie or the 350 million lie or the Turkey lie and he knew those were all false and he was bragging about the fact that they wouldn't have got the result without that that's what I never forget and I, and I remember driving near uh, my home in Wimbledon and seeing that big red billboard with that, with that um, uh, passport open and the footprints coming in, 75 million Turks, whatever it was. And every time I drove past that, I thought, fuck you, I feel so oppressed by this. I don't know what to do against this. That billboard is hanging over me. I can't blow it up, I can't tear it down, but I know it's wrong and I know it's being pumped out everywhere. This isn't what my country should be about, where people can actually spend money on such falsehoods around the country. That deeply, deeply wound me up and I never forgive that um, and I feel that the situation at the moment is I agree that the reason for people's vote is that you have to say okay public you started this you decided to open a bit of a Pandora's box now you should come back see what it's opened up and either sign on the small print or say close this up and we'll have nothing to do with it I don't believe in, in this notion whereby um, it should just be handed over the politicians to do whatever. I think that is that has deeply led us astray, and it is the tactic of the poor salesman, the crooked salesman, to bludgeon someone into just saying, "Okay, do whatever you need to do, do whatever you want." That always leads to bad outcomes in the end. We have to reinvigorate the public to engage with us. I mean, to end this section. This general election, it's quite clear. The public, if they vote Conservative, will get Brexit. If they don't have a, a vote Conservative, if there isn't a majority government, then I suspect we're going to have a second referendum, a final say referendum. And the public will have the final say on whether we Brexit or not. It's clear cut. So to any listeners, it's nothing more... It's, it, it is straightforward now. You have an opportunity in this election to give yourself a chance to stop Brexit. And I would argue you should vote Liberal Democrat. But actually, the message is you cannot vote Conservative if you don't want to see Brexit. For me, it's about more than that. It, it's about actually Boris Johnson. And I don't want this election to be about Boris Johnson. If we make it about Boris Johnson, we fall into exactly the same trap that I was talking about before, where criticism of a character and praise of a character and criticism of a, inflate that character relative to all other characters and make people tend to default onto them. But, so I think we should talk about the Eton gang and the mess that they've made and the fact that the Brexit storm is still ahead of us because we haven't even got halfway through the Brexit programme. We haven't even signed off the halfway point after three and a half years and people are dead in their hearts about it. That is every reason to tack away from the storm. However, for me, deeply in my soul, I cannot abide the thought that my country, the country I love, would be led by someone who I know to be an arrant, repeated liar and a charlatan. I cannot have that man representing our country around the world. So I will avoid his name and go with other arguments, but my motivator in my heart is no, let us not be that. Amen to that.
It's the end of the podcast and time for our traditional roundup of what our guests will be up to at the weekend to unwind from the stresses of politics. Mike, what do you like to do over the weekend? I will be with my boys, uh, Nick and Yasha, who are uh, 15 and 12, respectively. Um, and uh, I will be chilling out with them and maybe dragging them out to do something and pulling them away from the computer, which is the, the, the plight and the plague of the modern age with young adolescent boys, but uh, there we go. I mean, I like to think I can get away from the stresses of politics, but in the middle of a general election campaign, I suspect that's unlikely, so I'm going to be campaigning this weekend. And, and unfortunately, I don't have rugby uh, this weekend. After a pretty weak performance, dare I say it, by England last week, they seemed to peak in the semi-final. And, um, they were brilliant in the know, semi-final I, 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 yeah, against the I know. world champions as well. I, 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 so I, we all, I think we all felt flat about that. Yeah, I felt really flat last Saturday. Um, so I, I mean, I, we can't I, do the doubt too much, because I wouldn't put myself in that environment. I, I <laughs> it's a tough environment. Yeah. Um, so, so for me, it's probably politics of the weekend and politics in the week at the moment. Um, well, that's the end of another edition of On the House. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. Let's wait and see whether Sam's here. He might still be campaigning. And more of our friends and friendly rivals will be joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to On the House on your favourite podcast app. Thanks to Mike Goldsworthy for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Goodbye, and we'll see you next time. On the House was presented by Dr. Philip Lee. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese, and the producer is Abu Harrison. On the House is a Podmasters production.